0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host Aaron Fleming. So this week for the very first time I have a disclaimer. The case I'm going to talk about is pretty brutal and the person who committed the crimes was not mentally well. Some of the details are very disturbing. And even for me, and I have a very high threshold, there's some animal abuse and a pretty awful death involving a toddler. So please, if you're listening and this might bother you, this isn't the episode for you. I don't go into the animal abuse much, but I do talk about the baby's death in a bit of detail. There's also discussion of necrophilia and cannibalism. So just to give you some fair warning. And this week, for the very first time, I'm pretty excited. I'm going to do uh, some advertising. If you're into plays, there's a really cool play coming up. The Jester's Guild presents Ken Ludwig's adaptation of the Alexander Dumas classic, The Three Musketeers. It's directed by Derek Lynch, with fight direction by Tanya Lynn. The swashbuckling escapades of main character D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers are at the forefront of an exciting adventure in 17th-century France. Their exploits will be center stage at the New Hazlet Theater in four showings, October 13th through the 15th. Pittsburgh showcases a wide range of talent for this fun romp, which embraces live steel combat on stage with singing, dancing, and comedy. At the heart of the play is the desire to champion honor and justice acting nobly even when government officials plot to undermine the monarchy. Ludwig's adaptation makes the Dumas classic accessible to a modern audience, sure to thrill and entertain. Ken Ludwig's Three Musketeers will be at the new Hazlet Theater, that's October 13th through the 15th, with a matinee and a regular performance on Saturday, October 14th. On-street parking is available at no cost after 6 p.m., Monday through Saturday, and all day Sunday. Tickets can be pre-purchased for $20 at the JestersGuild.Ticketleet.com or through the new HazletTheatre.org. There are discounts available for pre-order groups. Tickets are $25 at the door, and if you go to the door and say Redrum, You're going to get 10% off. That's a special discount for anybody that's listening in the Pittsburgh area. Check this show out. I know a couple of people that are working on it and they're really cool people. It's going to be pretty exciting. I'm going to check it out. And that's the first bit of advertising. I may repeat that at the very end, just in case you didn't get that. And if you have any questions, I'll probably put it on the Facebook page or the Twitter the Twitter, in case you want any more details. So, let's get into this case. In one month, in 1977, one man killed six people in the Sacramento area. His spree was one of the goriest and bizarre to go down in history. He didn't have a certain type of person that he stalked and killed. Anyone was fair game, and death was just the beginning for him. He believed he had to consume blood and organs to keep himself alive. This is the story of Richard Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento. Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950 in Santa Clara, California. His parents were very strict, and there is some talk of physical abuse by his father. At a very early age, he exhibited signs of the McDonald Triad, That's arson, bedwetting, and cruelty to animals. And this is the beginning foundation to many a killer. He became very dependent on alcohol early in his adolescence. It's most likely due to his family life. His parents didn't get along at all, and they fought constantly. His mother sought help of two different psychiatrists just for herself. She seemed to think her husband was trying to poison her. Richard Chase himself would soon suffer from his own delusions. In high school, he seemed relatively normal. He had a few girlfriends, but no serious relationships. This could be due to his erectile dysfunction. For this, he sought professional help, being told that his problems stemmed from either repressed rage or mental illness. His aversion to conventional sex was an issue. In February of 1971, he rented an apartment with some friends. His behavior was very off-putting to the roommates. He frequently engaged in the use of LSD, alcohol, marijuana. And in addition to that, he walked around naked despite having company in the apartment. Chase boarded up his closet and room doors. The roommates finally had enough. After unsuccessfully urging him to leave, they moved out instead. From there, Chase's behavior got even more erratic. He believed his body was being manipulated. He thought his stomach was backward. He shaved his head thinking that his cranial bones were separated and moving around. Often, he would place oranges on his head thinking he could absorb the vitamin C via diffusion. And the soap dish in his bathroom was to be avoided at all costs, because poison was underneath it, and it would turn his blood into powder. And in order to prevent his heart from shrinking, he developed a very special concoction. Chase would kill and disembowel small animals. Then he would mix the raw organs with Coca-Cola in a blender and then drink it like a smoothie. He was not well at all. He ended up moving back in with his parents. So the next year, his parents separated and then finalized a divorce. Chase took a soul-searching trip to Utah. That trip was cut short when he was arrested for marijuana possession. Then he got into more trouble in the spring of 73 at a friend's party. After fondling a girl, he was asked to leave and the police were called. When they arrived, they witnessed a twenty two caliber gun fall from his belt. Once again, he was jailed, only this time to have his father bail him out. Exasperated, his mother sent him to stay with his grandmother in Los Angeles. That would be her mother. And she sent him back after only a few months. He continued to see physicians for his, quote, head injuries and various stomach ailments. One neurologist said he had, quote, a psychiatric disturbance of major proportions. Still, he didn't seek any kind of additional help or medication. In December of 73, he was involuntarily committed to American River Hospital. He thought someone had stolen his pulmonary artery and that his blood flow had stopped. He was admitted to the psychiatric ward, but his mother took him out. His delusions just continued. He proclaimed he was a reincarnation of one of the younger brothers, those of the bank robbers associated with Jesse James. So once again, he was hospitalized, and this time at Beverly Manor, committed as a schizophrenic, suffering from somatic delusions. When not in the hospital, he went back and forth between his mother and father. His behavior toward and around his mother was becoming increasingly worse. During one argument, he slapped her and knocked her to the ground. On another occasion, she found him at her front door holding a dead cat and smearing the blood on his face. In 1976, he was once again taken to the hospital after injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. The paranoid schizophrenic was five foot eleven, but only 145 pounds, due to his diet of blood smoothies. This time, the doctors refused to release him, saying he was a danger to others. He somehow managed to escape the hospital and went to his mother's house. Once apprehended there, he was transferred to a mental hospital. During his stay, he was given the nickname of Dracula by the staff. This is because Chase managed to capture two birds through the bars through his window. He snapped their necks, and he smeared the blood all over his body. Out of all the patients there, he disturbed them the most. After treatment using psychotropic drugs, he was released no longer being deemed a danger to society. But they released him into the care of his mother, and she weaned him off his medication, saying she didn't like that the medicines dulled him. So his father once again got him his own apartment. This is obviously an out-of-sight, out-of-mind move. I don't think anybody knew what to do with him. Chase took up killing and torturing small animals and his fascinations with guns increased, leading him to buy several. Around this time, the hillside strangler was very prominent in the news, and Chase thought they had something in common. He believed they were both victims of a Nazi UFO conspiracy. So after he acquired a 1966 Ford Ranchero wagon on a trip to Washington State, he became involved in another encounter with authorities. On August 3, 1977, officers of the Bureau of Indian Affairs found an abandoned Ford Ranchero near Pyramid Lake Reservation in Nevada. When they looked inside, they found a twenty-two caliber gun, a rifle, and a bucket containing a liver. They soon discovered Chase walking around, covered in blood and naked. Of course, he was quickly arrested, and they impounded his car. But after they realized that the liver and the blood belonged to a cow and not a human, he was released. But it wasn't long before that descent into madness would become deadly. In December, he acquired another gun, a twenty two caliber semi-automatic pistol. His first adventure with the gun was to shoot into a neighbor's kitchen window and he missed her head by mere inches. Then, on December 29th, he would claim his first victim. Fifty-one-year-old engineer and father of two, Ambrose Griffin was helping his wife unload groceries from her car. She had the trunk open, and she was grabbing a sack of potatoes, and suddenly, her husband fell to the ground. She seemed to think he was suffering from a heart attack, She didn't think anything of the two popping sounds she heard, not realizing that one of those sounds was a bullet hitting her husband's heart. In January, Chase accosted a neighbor, asking for a cigarette, and then forcibly restraining her until she gave him the whole pack. Two weeks later, he attempted to enter a woman's home. Luckily, the door was locked, so he just walked away. He had this belief that locked doors were a sign that he was not welcome. Unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. So if you ever need a reason to lock your doors, let this be the one. I used to live way out in the country, and my friends would always balk because my front door was always locked. I would say, listen, I watch a lot of criminal minds, read a lot of true crime. I'm not about to get murdered. I don't know why you guys would leave your doors unlocked. So after not gaining access into the first home, Chase tried another house down the street. He broke into the house of a young married couple, urinated in their infant's clothing drawer, and defecated on the bed. Chase was still in the house when the couple came home. He just narrowly escaped being attacked by the husband. In hindsight, they would soon realize how lucky they were because the second murder would soon happen. On January 23rd, 1978, Teresa Wallen's door was unlocked. This was so she could take out the garbage. The job fell to her since her husband David was still at work. The 22-year-old was only three months pregnant, so it wasn't too hard of a task. But the unlocked door was access to Richard Chase. She put up her hand to defend her face, and he shot her through the hand. That bullet traveled up her arm, through her elbow, and skimmed her neck. The next bullet hit her skull. Jace got on top of her and shot another bullet directly into her temple. From there, he dragged her body into the bedroom, where he raped it post-mortem while stabbing it with a butcher knife. from there he removed several internal organs. He cut off a nipple and then he drank her blood. He collected blood in a bucket to later bathe in. Then he collected dog feces from the yard and stuffed it into her mouth and down her throat. Finally finished defiling her body, he left. Around six o'clock, David Wallen returned home from work. His wife didn't respond when he called for her. And that was unusual. And that's when he noticed odd stains on the floor. He followed them and he found his wife's lifeless body laying on the floor right inside the doorway to the bedroom. And immediately he knew she'd been raped. Her sweater was pulled up over her head and her pants and underwear were around her ankles. Police found that she'd been stabbed in the liver, diaphragm, lung, and breast. Her kidneys had been cut out and placed inside her pancreas. There was blood absolutely everywhere. The oddest discovery was a yogurt cup that seemed to contain blood. When the police arrived on the scene, David Wallant was so upset he couldn't even speak. The so police immediately contacted the FBI for help. Russ Vorpagel at the Behavioral Science Unit consulted with the legendary founder of that unit, Robert Ressler. Ressler was the one who actually coined the term serial killer. He was an FBI agent who helped found the BSU and did very significant work with interviewing serial killers in the hopes of learning more about how their minds work. So he's essentially the grandfather of profiling. He has a book called Whoever Finds Monsters, And it chronicles his journey into becoming the FBI's most prominent profiler. And it starts out with the case of Richard Chase. So together, the two men worked on this exact profile. White male, aged 25 to 27, thin, undernourished appearance. The residence will be extremely slovenly and unkempt, and evidence of the crime will be found at the residence history of mental illness, and will have been involved in the use of drugs. Will be a loner who does not associate with either males or females, and will probably spend a great deal of time in his own home, where he lives alone. Unemployed, possibly receives some form of disability money. If residing with anyone, it would be his parents. However, this is unlikely. No prior military record, high school, or college dropout. Probably suffering from one or more forms of paranoid psychosis. So Ressler explained the difference between organized and disorganized killers, and this was very interesting. So organized killers carefully and methodically stalk their victims and carry out the attack. They then are very careful to cover their tracks. But with a disorganized killer, it's the exact opposite. Leaving some much evidence at the Teresa Wallen home showed how Chase was a very disorganized killer. So he then went on to explain why he came up with the conclusions in the profile. And this, to me, was absolutely fascinating. This guy wasn't just throwing darts at a board. He had very precise reasoning. The greatest number of serial killers are white males in their 20s or 30s. And it took obvious psychosis to brutally rip apart this woman. He explained that paranoid schizophrenia develops in the teen years, and he then added 10 years to that. This age, because most serial killers are under 35, and if he would have been older, his illness would have been so overwhelming that there definitely would have been more murders at this point. Since nothing else like this bizarre killing had been reported, He figured this was his first major killing. The appearance detail also had to do with thinking the killer would be a paranoid schizophrenic. Studies seem to show that there is a correlation between body types and mental temperament. Slight body types tended to be more introverted schizophrenics. and Those types don't eat well and they disregard their appearance. Hence, no one would want to live with someone like that so they would live alone.
1: Botox Cosmetic, of Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: And the military wouldn't accept or keep someone like that, so not a military man. They also wouldn't be able to keep a job, so most likely would have a disability check or live with parents. In the end, it was all dead on, and it was really fascinating stuff to read. Not included in the profile, but a belief of wrestlers, was that the killer would live close to the killing. In that state of mind, the killer wouldn't be able to drive much. Most likely, he would have walked to and from the crime scene. The coroner who performed the autopsy on Teresa Wallen said she probably had some of the stab wounds inflicted prior to her death. The killer would most likely have blood on their shirt as a result. This was broadcast to the public in the hopes that someone had seen someone in a bloody shirt. There was speculation that she was followed home after cashing a check at a nearby shopping center. Her mother called her home at 1.30 and she didn't receive an answer. The coroner thought she had been killed prior to that. The only thing they didn't have at this point was the who and why behind the murder. But no one would have enough time to think about it before more murders occurred. Within a mile of the Wallen home, three bodies were discovered. 38-year-old Evelyn Maroth was a well-known babysitter in that neighborhood. This day, she was watching her 22-month-old nephew and her own son, Jason, who was six. Helping her was her neighbor and friend, Danny Meredith, who was 52, he sat with the kids while Evelyn had a bath. Hearing a noise in the hallway, he went to check. That's when he was shot in the head with a twenty two handgun. An officer found Meredith in the hallway in a pool of blood. He followed a blood trail to the bathroom and discovered the bodies of Jason and Evelyn. Little Jason had been shot twice in the head. Evelyn suffered brutal carnage like Teresa Wallen did. After shooting her, he sodomized her corpse. He allowed the blood to pool in her abdomen so he could drain it and drink it. At one point, he attempted to remove her eyes and there was evidence of cannibalism. She had multiple stab wounds all over her face and some around her anus. One of those wounds caught all the way to her uterus. Most disturbing about the scene was the bloody playpen nearby, where the visiting baby slept. Inside it was a blood-soaked pillow, and expended slug were found, but no baby. The bathtub contained red water, brain, and fecal matter, and there were strange blood ringlets that looked like containers were taken from the scene containing blood. Meredith's keys and car were missing, and the front door was ajar, Apparently, Jason had a play date with a six-year-old girl next door. So when she knocked, it startled Chase, who took off with the baby. Due to the amount of blood in the crib, they theorized that the baby had to be dead. His crimes had greatly escalated. Wrestler urged Russ Warpigel to tell the local authorities that the killer would be living within one-half to one mile of the area. Remember, his profile stated that the killer was disorganized, meaning his state would be that he couldn't drive much. Wrestler thought the car would have been ditched close by and the killer would have walked the rest of the way. They started a massive manhunt in the area that half-mile radius. Police were knocking on doors asking if anyone had seen a young, disheveled, thin man. Their work paid off when Nancy Holden contacted police. She was in a shopping center near the first murder when she saw a guy she went to high school with years ago. But his appearance was much different than it was then. He was very thin, with sunken eyes and wearing a bloody orange sweatshirt. He insisted on getting a ride from her, and when he started pulling on the handle of her door, she drove away in a panic. Of course, that man was Richard Chase. When she heard the detail about someone wearing a blood-soaked shirt. She knew it was the same man police were looking for in this crime. Looking at the chase, they saw that he lived within a mile of the area and he owned guns. They staked out his apartment. It was a mile east of the shopping center and less than a block away from where they found the abandoned stolen car. Since they figured he would be armed, they were very careful. Chase emerged from the apartment when he thought the officers had left. He ran and was quickly tackled. A twenty two fell out of his shoulder holster. Most damning was Meredith's wallet in his back pocket. His apartment inside was a mess of dirty clothes and newspapers. In the refrigerator, they found dishes with body parts. The blender used to make his special smoothies was on the counter beside two more containing blood. Several knives in a drawer belonged to the Wallen residence. And they also found rubber boots and a lot of animal collars. On the wall was a calendar with the dates of the murder circled in red and marked today. And even more frightening were over 40 more dates in the future marked today too. Had he not been apprehended, who knows how much carnage he would have committed. So what happened to the baby? This is where I want to give you the opportunity to fast forward or leave the room or come back in a minute because it's pretty disturbing. The baby's body was eventually found in a box that was placed in a vacant lot near a church. But so much time had passed that the body had become mummified. What's worse is what he did with the body while it was in his possession. At the Maroth home, he shot the baby. He cracked its skull on the tub and he ate some of the baby's brain matter. When he was interrupted by the knock of the little girl next door, he fled with the corpse. He took the baby's corpse home and he removed the organs and ate them. Those are not easy details to hear, I know. I'm a mother. The gun found at Chase's home matched ballistically with the bullets found at the murder scenes. His footprints matched ones they found trampled all over both houses. Wrestler's profile most assuredly helped catch Chase. At the time, Chase was living alone on disability. Old acquaintances that happened to bump into him said he talked of UFOs and Nazis after him. He lived close to the murders and was the right age, and matched the description to a T. After looking into his life more, they found the neighbors complained of him taking animals into the apartment. Many animals were reported missing in the area. In 1979, he stood trial for six counts of murder. The defense tried to have him found guilty of second-degree murder in the hopes of avoiding the death penalty. But two psychiatrists found him legally sane. He took the stand in his defense at a trial. His weight was now down to 107 pounds. Chase said he was semi-conscious during the first killings and he blamed his actions on being mistreated in life. He didn't recall the second murders. All he knew was that he shot and decapitated a baby, leaving it in a bucket to get more blood he said he thought the baby was something else, not a baby, which no one understood. The trial lasted for four months and the jury deliberated for only five hours. On May 8, 1979, he was found guilty of six counts of first degree murder. He was given a death sentence and sent to San Quentin. So it was at this time that Robert Ressler was interviewing killers and compiling the information in an effort to better understand their behavior. He jumped at the chance to speak with Chase. This would be great insight into the mind of an disorganized killer, and would help in future cases. Wrestler said that when he saw Chase being brought into the room in shackles, it made him think of Marley's ghost in A Christmas Carol. Most alarming were his eyes, which were black like a shark's. No pupils, just black spots. Chase admitted to the murder, saying he did it to preserve his own blood. He talked about the soap dish poisoning. So if you lift up the soap and the part underneath is dry, you were okay. If it's gooey, you have soap dish poisoning. He thought it would turn your blood into powder, and the powder would then reduce your capacities. By this time, Wrestler knew how to properly react to confessions like this. So if he reacted in a wrong way, the prisoner might quit talking to him, and all would be lost. So he acted like this was an absolutely ordinary thing to hear. He then told Wrestler that he'd been born Jewish, which he was not, and had a star of David on his head. Once again, Wrestler didn't react. He only said he didn't bring his glasses, so he couldn't see it on his head. Chase then went on to talk more about UFOs and Nazis and how he did everything to protect himself. And he talked about how he would try the handle of a house door and it being locked or unlocked determined his entry. Wrestler noticed that he brought a small cup in with him to the interview, so he decided to ask him about it. Chase thought the prison officials, much like his mother, were poisoning him. The cup contained remnants of packaged macaroni and cheese that he wanted Wrestler to take to Quantico to analyze for poison. And Clearly, Chase was not mentally well. How he was found mentally competent is an absolute mystery. Ressler agreed. Prison psychologists and psychiatrists were urging the system to transfer him to the California medical facility part of the prison that would keep the insane, The prisoners in the regular prison hated him and urged him daily to kill himself. On December 26, 1980, a guard checking prison cells noticed Chase was lying very awkwardly on his stomach, with his legs hanging off the bed. Once he got inside the cell, he noticed Chase wasn't breathing. He had died from taking an overdose of saved antidepressants. Luckily, Ressler had spoken to him at enough length to gain some knowledge from the whole encounter. All of these interviews that he compiled would help future officers and investigators understand the motives and the ways of killers. His profile was the linchpin in the investigation into stopping Chase's murderous rampage. The importance of those interviews is immeasurable in the end. The more we understand about these killers, the quicker we can stop or prevent deaths. As hard as some of the details of this were to read and write about, I agree that it's very important to know about. Chase wasn't mentally well at all, and I think it's a lesson into the whole mental health issue. I mean, around that time, people got treated. Unfortunately, his mother decided to wean him off his medication. Had she not done that and listened to the advice of many of the hospitals, there would most certainly have been some deaths prevented. At this point in time, the system's an absolute mess. People don't get the treatment they need. Things have steadily declined since the 80s when Reagan virtually dismantled the mental health care system. He's pretty much the reason you see guys walking the streets talking to themselves. I've had people very close to me have mental health issues and there's such a stigma attached to it. It makes so many people not seek help. Instead, they self-medicate or they don't get any help at all and it's very hard on the people they love. We can't even get our regular healthcare system fixed so I'm sure it's going to take decades to have a properly functioning mental health system. So cases like Richard Chase and a previous one that I did on Roy Kirk, many others, they're important to look at in depth. We need to recognize that people need mental help, and they need to get treated. And we need to take that stigma away. And slowly but surely, it's happening. Now it's not as hard to say you're suffering from postpartum depression. But you know, it probably took a lot of fatalities involving kids and mothers. I had postpartum depression. I knew because of my family history that I might have some problems with it after giving birth, so at the very first signs of trouble, I sought help. And I think many mothers feel better about seeking that help now. But when my mom had me, I think she suffered from it and she didn't get that help. And that's sad that anyone should feel any kind of shame. Having a mental health issue is just like having a physical issue no one chooses to have diabetes no one wants to have paranoid schizophrenia this stuff happens you're born with it or it develops later in life so it would be really nice if everyone felt safe seeking this kind of help or actually had competent and affordable help for themselves thankfully there are a lot of organizations out there trying to help there's the national alliance on mental illness or NAMI the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the Trevor Project, the Fountain House, and countless others. As brutal as these chase murders were, I don't think anyone could say he was mentally alright. I don't think these murders were premeditated. He killed at random, and his motives for killing weren't normal. He killed six people in a very short span in Sacramento. Murders that could have been prevented. The diligence of many officers and investigators are what ultimately brought him down. But had he not been caught so quickly, one really shudders to think what atrocious crimes would have been committed. So that was the story of Richard Trenton Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento. It was not an easy one. If you want to hear a little bit more about him and you want it to be a little bit more lighthearted than mine... There's a great, I believe it's a three-part episode of Last Podcast on the Left. These guys are great. I just saw them live. They are tremendous. I hate to say tremendous because, you know, somebody else says that. But they really were. It was a great show. And, you know, their podcast is is the bomb. Uh, So check them out. Like I said, I think that one was a three-parter. So I'm thinking about uh, what to do in the future weeks kind of mulling over doing a true crime event in the news. So let me know your ideas and opinions. I'm on Facebook. Just search for the Red Rum Blonde page. Or tweet at me, at Blonde BlondRedRum. Please be gentle in your iTunes reviews. This is still a work in progress. And once again, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, go check out this play. So let me go through this again. The Jester's Guild presents Ken Ludwig's adaptation of the Alexandre Dumas classic, The Three Musketeers. It's directed by David Lynch. It's directed by Derek Lynch, David is his brother, with fight direction by Tanya Lynn. The swashbuckling escapades of main character D'Artagnan and the titular Three Musketeers are at the forefront of an exciting adventure in the 17th century France. Their exploits will be center stage at the New Hazlet Theater in four showings, October 13th through the 15th, and Pittsburgh showcases a wide range of talent for this fun romp, which embraces lifesteal combat on stage, along with singing, dancing, and comedy. At the heart of the play is the desire to champion honor and justice, acting nobly even when government officials plot to undermine the monarchy. Ludwig's adaptation makes the Dumas classic accessible to a modern audience, sure to entertain and thrill. Ken Ludwig's Three Musketeers will be at the new Hazelitt Theater, that's October 13th through the 15th, with a matinee and regular performance on Saturday, October 14th. On-street parking is available at no cost after 6 p.m. Monday through Saturday and all-day Sunday. You can get pre-purchased tickets, at theJestersGuild.ticketleap.com, or through NewHazletTheater.org, there are discounts available for pre-order groups. Tickets are twenty-five dollars at the door, and if you go to the door and say "Red Rum," all caps, you will get ten percent off. So that's the New Hazlet Theater. That's October thirteenth through the fifteenth. Go check it out. Like I said, the people putting their heart and soul into this. I know a couple of them. They're really great. So it's going to be really entertaining. I'm pretty excited about it. I'll try to put some information on my page. They have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Jester's Guild. So check them out. Um, If you have any questions about it, I can surely answer that for you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. And remember, please keep your doors locked.